Welcome to Boxes and Lines, a different kind of finance podcast from a different kind of stock exchange. Featuring IEX founder Ronan Ryan and Chief Market Policy Officer John Ramsey. Now here to give you the straight talk on how the markets really work. It's Ronan and JR. Welcome everybody to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Welcome to Boxes and Lines. Oh, you're not doing the Irish accent? No, no, you always give me shit about the Irish accent, so I'm just, I'm not doing it anymore. All right, Jesus Christ, this is off to a great start. Well, listen. Welcome. There we go. Uh, We want to welcome a very special guest, uh, Matt Harris, partner at Bain Capital Ventures and an investor in IEX, pre-JR arriving at IEX. That that might tell you (laughs) something. Well, actually, and I don't know if you remember this, Matt, but I believe you called me when uh, you were in the process of considering the investment in uh, IEX and uh, had a discussion about when I still was at the SEC or just just left the SEC. Did John dream this, man? Indeed, that's true. We did We did call the SEC, and thank you for, it was thanks to your positive, balanced but positive reference that we ended up being fortunate <laughs> enough to be an IEX shareholder. You didn't comment on Ronan. I didn't ask the question. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't know him well enough at that point, yeah. or it might have been a different, might have been a different outcome, but. He's thankful yeah. every day that mm-hmm. he sits beside me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, Although I, he did I, ask today if he could start coming in every second week. Uh, <laughs> that is true. Not just, no, I'm just saying, uh, you know, the rest of the time I'm out on Long Island. So I just figured it could be, it'd be a little easier on me if I didn't have to travel back and forth quite so much. But All anyway, right. let's move along. Anyway, so today we're going to talk about the trends in the fintech space. And I thought it'd be really interesting after that, to the extent you can shine a light on how you evaluate opportunities why you pick a company, when in their life cycle you pick a company, stuff like that. But um, just to kick it off, I thought it would be helpful from your view, Matt, if you could define for the listeners what you, you know, what you define fintech to be, please. Sure. So I've been investing in fintech companies for 22 years now. And I think it's fair to say that actually the definitions changed a fair bit. Um, back in the day, when people talked about fintech companies, they were talking basically about vendors you know, companies that sold technology into the financial services industry. Companies we now think of like a Fiserv or an ACI or an FIS or Jack Henry. You know, these are companies that mainly sold software to banks. And what happened starting maybe 15, 16, 17 years ago, there was a new set of fintech companies who instead of selling things to the incumbents, started competing with the incumbents in payments and in banking and wealth and capital markets. And that's kind of the modern era of fintech, which is not something that's there to, you know, support the legacy companies, but rather to take market share away from the legacy companies. So right now you have both types. You got the vendors and you got these insurgents who are using technology to offer better products and services to consumers and businesses. And and, uh, that's, you know, we invested $50 billion as an industry last year in fintech companies of those two flavors. Wow. Yeah. So, so when you look at 2022 then, you know, what are the big trends you're watching this year in that space? Mainly I'm watching the stock market fall apart. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we are, I should mention we are recording this on day one of the Russian invasion. So there is, uh, so that's fresh on everyone's mind. Yes. Although the market is oddly up today. But it, it, importantly, though, if you look at, Close to 100 fintech companies went public last year, and there is now a universe, uh, well over 100 you know, public fintech companies. And that 
index, if you built one, would have peaked in October of 2021 and is off over 40% since then. Mm. So both wow. the old face names like PayPal and Square, but also all these newly public companies, almost all of which are trading below their IPO price. In some cases, um, you know, trading at half their IPO price. So it's been a tricky year as it relates to how you value these things. Um, but, you know, I think there's still really exciting things happening. And, and, and as I try to remind people, it's off 50%, which brings it all the way back to what it was valued at 18 months ago. I mean, it's still mm-hmm. yes. an incredibly highly valued sector. And that is a reflection of the dynamism uh, of what's going on here. So there's still a lot happening in payments. There's a lot of change happening in wealth. I think the most dynamic sector is probably crypto, or as people call it now, Web3. Yeah, and we wanted to ask you about that, but but speaking of public companies and um, valuations and all of that, one of the more popular routes to going public, as you know, has been the SPAC structure, which uh, was kind of all the rage for a while. And some, some of the air seems to have been let out of that balloon, uh, both because of regulatory scrutiny and um, just, you know, kind of investors didn't seem to be doing that well post-acquisition in a lot of those deals. Do you have any thoughts about kind of the SPAC train and whether it's run its course? Yeah, it's not only run its course, it's probably run into a brick wall. <laughs> I mean, it is an unmitigated disaster taken as a whole. Um, yeah. I can't think of a single SPAC that is trading above $10, which is the price at which all of them uh, technically go public. Uh, I'm sure there are some, uh, but it is vanishingly small. And that is a reasonable definition of a failure. Um, You know, there are so many odds stacked up against a company that went public via SPAC. You don't have the right shareholders. You don't have the right research analysts. Many of them shouldn't have been public to begin with, but many of them were just great companies who chose an alternative to an IPO and they've all been punished equally. Wow. Um, So I think it is maybe irredeemable. And, you know, some of my best friends are SPAC sponsors and I I don't want to, you know, um, cast too much of a shadow on the entire space because there's very, very good people involved. But if I'm an issuer right now, I don't know what in the world could induce me to go public via SPAC, mm-hmm. or, or maybe through other means. Because one of the one of the questions is, uh, you know, big policy questions been debated recently. Is is it, are there just too many barriers to going public? Is it too hard? Is there too many compliance obligations? Are there just too many impediments? And should we be trying to do something to remove some of those? Do you have any thoughts about that? My view is that the the binary nature of public and private is too stark a distinction. And I think we should think of it a little more like a dial than like a switch. Um, To me, that would include rules like greater regulation and oversight of private companies above a certain size, you know, similar to the UK's regime uh, around disclosure for companies and a relaxation of the accredited investor rules, which basically allow for the rich to get richer um, (laughs) by capturing the alpha available in private markets. And if you don't have wealth, you know, good luck generating it because you can't invest in any of these really high growth private companies. And 
as the public markets have taught us in the past three months, a lesson that hopefully we didn't need to learn, there's plenty of risk in the public markets. It's not like we're protecting the widows and orphans from 70% drawdowns. And so I think that more people and more institutions should have access to alpha. I don't think there's anything you can do to generate more public companies. We just ran an experiment. We had 200 companies go public last year, and they're all trading below issue. And so I, I don't think more companies going public worked for the, either the issuer or the IPO buyer. Um, so I don't think that's the lever to pull. I think the lever to pull is making being private less of a clubby situation and and in doing so also increase the regulatory burden incrementally on those folks. Yeah, because barriers aside, exactly what you're saying, whether IPO or SPAC, it was an unmitigated disaster in terms of share price. Why, like IEX is a public as a private company, why why would you want to jump into the public domain right now? But uh, maybe maybe what were you going to talk about with the SEC on private? companies? Oh yeah yeah yeah. I was so another point, man. As as you're well aware, I'm sure is there has been additional scrutiny in the regulatory realm around private equity uh, funds and advisors in particular. Whether there should be more reporting to the SEC, whether there should be more restrictions on um, ac- activities of fund sponsors of, of certain types. Do you have a, a view about that and whether any of that is justified? Well, I think these things need to go hand in hand. I mean, just increasing the burden on private companies, that seems like the sort of thing the government would do, of course. But <laughs> but I think a more logical regulatory response would be to, on one hand, reduce accreditation burdens, and on the other hand, increase regulatory burdens. Mm. So you're saying, we're doing this, we're increasing the regulatory burden, we're doing it for a reason, because we're aware that companies are staying private longer and we want to allow more people to access that alpha. That would be like a coherent regulatory response to a phenomenon. Somebody asked me the other day the seemingly inane question of how many companies are in the Russell 5000. And it turns out it's 3,700 because <laughs> there aren't 5,000 public companies anymore. And so like there's something that happened. You know, we dried up the inducement to be a public company and you know private equity has grown by 10x and part of it is because you'd rather be owned by a private equity firm than be a public company in in many cases so if that's going to all be true and there's no way to there's no way to really change those dynamics there's no way to make life more hospitable that i can think of for public companies then we need to make sure that more people get to access the alpha that exists in private companies no, it makes sense. So let's go back to something you, you talked about earlier. Like, there's so much talk of crypto, DeFi, and now I guess it's classified as Web 3.0. And I think you had mentioned you've been investing in fintech for 22 years. So you you were around for, I guess, Web 2.0 and Pets.com and the, <laughs> the late 90s debacle of like uh, the dot-com bubble. Um, do you see it like it's the dot-com again, where there's obviously going to be winners and losers, but... Um, the valuations are just crazy on all these firms, but it's also a really interesting time from a technological standpoint and what's next with Web 
I think it's a reason, you know, every analogy is flawed, but I think it's a reasonable analogy. The crypto web three universe, um, I've come to develop very high conviction that it will change many industries in the same way that the internet did ultimately change many industries, but it took about 10 years longer than shareholders in 1999 thought it was going to, um, (laughs) based on those share prices. Yeah. And so all this is rhyming pretty well with what we see today amongst crypto companies and and the activities they're pursuing and the amount of money they're raising and the valuations at which they're raising it. One of the things that's different is that crypto as an asset class, which is to say, are people and institutions motivated to buy and sell and, and own Bitcoin and Ethereum and the many other potential assets that have been developed and invented in crypto land, I think that is actually probably past the tipping point where I think that's an affirmative. You know, people do. That's a business. And we need market structure around it still, and that's still emerging and, and represents, I think, a durable and meaningful opportunity. But then there's this separate thing, which is, is the real world going to change? Are... You and I, instead of using Twitter, are going to use a decentralized protocol powered by a token with which we do our micro messaging. Don't know. And probably we're going to use Twitter for the next decade until those new protocols achieve scale. And so I want to separate the two questions because it's very easy, I think, for the it's very easy to criticize Web3 and the scammers and NFTs and some Mm -hmm. of the phenomena that we all think seems frivolous and and risky and and again quite likely to be fraudulent but people use that to cast doubt on whether any of this makes any sense and and to me i think it's sort of beyond maybe not a shadow of a doubt but beyond a reasonable doubt that bitcoin is here to stay from my perspective as a non-fiat highly volatile store of value and 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 certain other cryptos as well. I mean, there's a huge range and spectrum of financial products that are being created, um, some of which will surely fall by the wayside. Some of them may have some staying um, power. But it's still a, a lot of lack of regulatory clarity around um, how these things ought to be viewed um, and, and how they ought to be used. It does feel like there's a lot of froth. And to the extent that, I think one of the interesting questions is, all of these technologies in some sense um, reduce frictions and and provide a much greater ability for a bigger range of people to be empowered to do things that they um, that that were harder to do before. But when you start talking about investments in financial instruments, then uh, you know you worry about guardrails too. I think, and you worry about people being sucked in over their heads or unscrupulous people encouraging them um, to do that in ways that they're Jesus not prepared Christ. for. Is there a question? There is a question. Yes, it's a very, this is a very. Sorry, man. I nodded so, off and woke up and he's still going. Yeah. Unscrupulous. So anyway, well, yes, we'll edit it down, Matt. But the point <laughs> is, how do you see that trade-off or, or uh, are, are those concerns legitimate? The concerns are, are very legitimate. I mean, crypto, again, not trading Bitcoin, et cetera, but operating in the decentralized finance markets, as an example buying and selling NFTs on OpenSea, as another example, is the Wild West in terms of both the user experience uh, 
the user interface, and the risk of not just making a bad investment or a bad purchase, but also just plain old getting scammed, defrauded, or as they say, rug pulled <laughs> um, when a project collapses and, and the promoters you know, make off with all, all these undue gains. So that's, I mean, the internet was like this in 1998, 99 too. I mean, it was a catastrophe of the very worst elements of our society. You know, I can't tell you how many like crypto companies are based in Florida and Nevada, which Again, this was happening in the dot-com boom as well. There was Florida and Nevada. So it is happening. This is what happens on every frontier, whether it be the actual Wild West in 1830 or crypto today or the dot-com boom in the late 90s. And there needs to be regulation. And in fact, I wish the regulators were moving a little more quickly to define What's a security and what's not? What does a digital security look like? How is it regulated? What are the ways in which and where it can be traded safely? You know, there's a distinct lack of safe harbors and that's not good for capitalism. And so I would exhort the regulators to move quickly. Yes. Is this yeah. podcast a security? If we were making any money from it, I mean, I, I you know, Jesus, I, I wish yeah, we were. Ramsey turned to me today mm. on the desk, I'm not joking, and he goes, we should be paid for this. <laughs> it is we joint should. enterprise, but not in pursuit of profit. It's just for the edification of our and enjoyment of our listeners. <laughs> Absolutely. God, I mean, I mean, God bless them all. I, I guess our questions we would have for you is even when you look at a company like IEX or any company that you invest in, and, and even the crypto space, I guess the crypto space probably has even more uncertainty, but obviously you guys are smart. You've done this over the years, so I, I think you know how to ferret out uncertainty. But when you just hear about an opportunity like an IEX or anything like that, you know, What's the kickoff point? What, what are you looking for? Do you, is it first the founders? Is it the idea? Is it the industry that it's in? Like, what's kind of the thought process there? Give us the yeah, secret recipe for being Capital Ventures. Everybody listen. Got it. Well, <laughs> no longer going to be a secret. Uh, I, it depends a little bit on stage. So let me take answer the question as to when, like, I met IEX yep. or, or the very earliest stages where you don't have a lot of data to look at. Then it ultimately resolves, like everything resolves back to the founding team, you know, and, and even, you know, we ask our associates and we ourselves do a lot of diligence on things like market size. But really what we're saying is, is this team smart enough to have chosen a great market? You know, it, it, like every question is just circular back to team, because as you know, having lived through it, like life throws a lot of punches your way yep. and often you end up going for different markets than you thought at the time of our investment. Certainly you have a different economic model. And, um, and so if you were to like spend all your time diligencing the likely unit economics, for instance, of, a, of a, an early stage company, that's just a massive waste of time. Like we always sit down with the founders and say like, okay, tell us what, when you get to scale, like what are these unit economics going to look like? And the founders will lay out what they think they're going to look like. And we don't care what the result is of what they're saying. We use it as a diagnostic to see if they know what they're talking about. If they can be thoughtful in framing the puts and takes of a unit economic model. Their accuracy is irrelevant. Their thoughtfulness, their ability to think in frameworks, their level of sophistication is essential. That's funny because I I think you were, I think you were the investor who said it to us. But uh, 
we at one point said something like, oh, we believe these numbers are conservative. You're, you're like, everybody says that to us. Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and you were actually right. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things in terms of uh, evaluating opportunities that I was thinking about a little earlier today, there's been a lot of uh, talk, as you know, about change in the workforce, people leaving jobs, the great resignation, kind of all of that uh, willingness of people to depart. Is that a factor uh, that factors into, uh, which is redundant, um, <laughs> your um, view, uh, your, your uh, picking companies, kind of their vulnerabilities to that sort of phenomenon? Has the game changed in, in terms of uh, looking at companies' ability to retain staff? It's the single biggest topic in every board meeting I go to. So it's real. I mean, it is. If you're a founder out there or even just a manager and you're stressing about attrition, you know, you're, you're not alone. Um, and it confirms something. It confirms something that we have long held as, a, as an important tenant, uh, which is that people, first of all, they don't quit companies, they quit their boss. And second, and in particular for this generation of people who now make up the bulk of the workforce, they want to feel like they're on a mission. So it means that what we look for in a founding team, it emphasizes something we knew to be true. It deepens our introspection about it when we're considering backing a team is, are these leaders the kind of people that people are going to want to follow? And can we construe what this company is all about as something that's going to make the world a better place? Can they tell a story about why it is more than just money and a place to go to do, you know, your work and learn things, but rather something a 24-year-old could say, like, I am on a mission and here's why working at IEX helps to make the world a better place. And I actually think that's something Ronan and Brad, I mean, that was really the founding notion of the company. Um I mean, in fact, I'll tell you a joke from our investment committee at IEX. You guys came in and presented, and then we were talking about it. One of my senior, one of the senior partners of the firm, actually one of the co-chairmen of the firm, was in the room, and he turned to me at one point. He said, "Is this some kind of like social impact investment?" He <laughs> 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 meant it as a compliment, but, but the point was like the, the level of of zeal. And the missionary yeah. nature of the work, kind of against all odds, frankly, that that the team was pursuing had very overtly the kind of thing that we look for, which is when times get tough, are people going to leave in droves for better economic opportunity? Or are they going to stay because they're fighting for something they believe in? Well, I, I, you know, I have to say I find it uh, comforting um, and, and heartwarming to a certain extent that to hear you say that that is a real thing and it really does affect your evaluation of companies. It certainly is something that is a real uh, a real thing at IEX. It's certainly it's part, big part of the reason why I've stayed as long as I have, particularly given the you know meager crumbs that uh, Ronan um, throws to me. Um, but uh, yeah, it's um, um, check clears on Monday. Watch it. <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah, then I'm good till next I'm September. I'm texting our CFO um, on it. All right. Right here. Yeah. No, mission is key. Honestly, it was in the sales pitch that we said, you know, like ten years ago. It's something that's that's really key here. Although it is harder to enforce is the wrong word, but to you know propagate the mission when you have new employees starting outside of the office and. Uh, you know, a lot of companies are not fully back yet. We're back uh, voluntarily. But, I, you know, 
not to make it an IEX thing, but you know, in this grand resignation, we, we fared fairly well. But you hit the nail on the head, Matt, when you as founders or managers in a company, it's kind of concerning when you lose people because it's not just that you're losing people. It's actually pretty difficult to find good people right now. And you know, we, we've broadened it and we're looking at more virtual employees. And I'd be curious, you know, from an investor standpoint, uh, does that concern you or does that weigh into your decision? No. I mean, it is a pragmatic reality of running a company post-pandemic. And I don't think it's going back personally based on what I see. I have a few companies that are like fully virtual and they're giving up their leases. And, and one of these companies in question is 70 people and the other 700 people. And they're both are going fully virtual. That's the exception. But, but almost all of them are hybrid. And it's just a question of degree and a question of what are the tactics they're deploying to make sure there's enough cohesion. I understand an awful lot of businesses are going to be hybrid. Do you think the concept of really being wholly remote, even for a fintech company, is a viable concept, which I guess is a way to say, can, is it possible to sustain the kind of uh, base level cohesion and sense of you know commitment to mission and all of that? If people never see each other in the office ever, there's no scenario under which it's never ever, right? I mean, we're, every one of the companies has some cadence around aggregating. Um, it may not be in an office; it may be in a WeWork or maybe for a week offsite in a glamorous location. So the answer is no. There's no scenario under which like zero human contact works. Um, the question is like where on the continuum is too little. I suspect that it's got to be at least monthly, and there are certain functions where it's got to be more than that, where, you know, for senior executive leadership team, where there needs to be tight coordination and where there needs to be blocks of time where you're thinking about strategy, that work just has to be in person to me. Um, and again, maybe maybe you and I are missing a trick that the younger generations will figure out. But for engineers who, you know, their most productive time is is in isolation, coding, um, or all sorts of individual contributors around companies. I think that they can solve most of what they need to in terms of coordination over video and, and see their colleagues once every three or four weeks. And does that require an office? Does that require that you can only hire people in the same time zones, et cetera? I think these are all trade-offs because talent doesn't all want to be in New York City. And or Charlotte or wherever it is your headquarters is. And so you're looking at drastically limiting your talent pool to people who want to be in the office frequently and happen to live near your HQ. And if you relax those constraints, the world is your oyster. And I think almost every company I work with is relaxing those constraints for better access to talent. Yeah, like I, I'm definitely in the old fogey camp, like uh, John Ramsey here. But um <laughs> Because I will say, pre-pandemic, we were probably 95% in the office here in New York, five days a week. And of the last 30 employees that we hired, I think something like 65% of them now will be remote always because they're not even in a commutable distance to New York. And uh, I've definitely grown to realize you can you can broaden the scope of the talent that you can attract by doing it that way. And like frankly, even things like Zoom, and we're talking on a video conference now, if someone asked me to get on a Zoom call literally the week before we went home, I'd be like, get fuck out of here. Like, I'll talk to you on the phone. Like, we just wouldn't <laughs> do it. And now you do a one-on-one. So I think things have definitely changed in that regard. But yeah, I agree with you, Matt. Getting together 
is pretty paramount. Things like the sales team, it's good to get them together, hear the compatriots talking to others, what they're saying, what they're hearing, that kind of thing. But like a lot of it can be uh, very remote. So I guess I've changed my tune. It, uh, you, well, not completely. You still, you know, make me come in. I do it gladly. <laughs> make obviously. you come. No, it, no, no. I gladly come in. It's, it's um, voluntary. Days, but, fist. but we, but we are still kind of like all living the social experiment, right? Because um, it's, it's not, still not clear, as you say, Matt. Um, there is a difference just based on, uh, you know, individual personalities and, and how people are constructed. But, but the question is, at a basic human level how much direct physical contact do people need in order to feel connected? And, and, you know, it's, it's like we, we've never in human history had the ability to do all the things remotely that we had before. So, you know, how does all that work? I don't we don't know. know. No. So we got to loosen it up a little bit and give Matt the question of questions that we ask every podcast guest. And hopefully we prepped you. That you- <laughs> <laughs> so, or, or Matt, Harris, you're, yeah. you're on the spot. Uh, we ask all our guests to tell us their favorite Wall Street movie and why. Mm. I'm going to go with The Wolf. I'm going to go with The Wolf of Wall Street for a few reasons. Um, I think I could watch Leonardo DiCaprio read the phone book. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I find his charisma just so compelling. He's like one of those guys when he's on screen, you're like, something important is happening. I need to watch this. Um, Yeah. I also, like, we talked about the dot-com thing. We talked about crypto. Like, the world is full of scammers. I mean, it's, like, very clear to me in my work that the line between a charismatic, highly promotional founder and a scammer, (laughs) it's not – they're not opposite ends of the spectrum, right? I mean, sometimes it it can be – you know, depends on the circumstance. That guy could have gone either way. Or that woman could have gone either way. Yeah. So I think understanding the mind, it's actually useful for someone who invests in founders. Right. I'm hoping I wasn't uh, correlated to Leonardo DiCaprio's right-hand man in that movie <laughs> in Matt's eyes because that, that would be terrible. Of all the insults, <laughs> yeah. Matt, of all the insults. Excellent answer. What, what, do, what do we give all our guests for joining? Although I think, well. Matt has a lot of IEX swag, but unless I don't know if you the, have. Yeah, I mean. Unless. No one leaves here with nothing, we say. We're going to send you <laughs> your very own pair of IEX boxes and line socks for being a, an impressive guest. I'm in. I'm in. I'm excited about the socks. Thank you. They're, Thank they're you. good. And then we ask you to take a photo of your foot. What am I saying? If he wasn't already regretting this appearance. <laughs> IEX boxes and lines. Over and out. Uh, over and out until next very time. Very much. I didn't do your Irish accent very much. <laughs> Cheers, Matt. We really appreciate it. Great to be with you guys. Be well. Boxes and Lines is a podcast from IEX Exchange. It is hosted by Ronan Ryan and John Ramsey. Executive produced by Sarah Forster with support from Benstown. For more information and to hear more episodes, go to iexexchange.io slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Boxes and Lines. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only, and IEX Group Incorporated and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversation may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group Incorporated, all rights reserved.